Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. There has been unprecedented upheaval in Congress, specifically among the Republican majority in the House. The party's nominee for Speaker of the House, Congressman Steve Scalise, has just announced that he is dropping out as a candidate. I just share with my colleagues that I'm withdrawing my name as a candidate for the Speaker-designee. If you look at over the last few weeks, If you look at where our conference is, there's still work to be done. Now, we are going to have much more on that story in just a bit. But first, we continue our coverage of the Israel-Hamas war, which is about to enter its seventh day of fighting. The number of dead from this conflict has now reached more than 2,800 people. Among that number, Israel reports at least 1,300 Israeli lives lost, including over 200 Israeli soldiers. And the Palestinian Health Ministry reports More than 1,500 Palestinian lives have been lost. Those same authorities report that the number of injured Israelis is more than 3,300, and the number of injured Palestinians is more than 6,000. The number of Americans confirmed to have been killed in this conflict is now 27. Today, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in Israel, where he met with survivors of the outdoor concert that was among the deadliest sites of Hamas's attack. Secretary Blinken also met with the newly formed unity government of Prime Minister Netanyahu, and he reaffirmed U.S. support for Israel. You may be strong enough on your own to defend yourself, but as long as America exists, you will never, ever have to. We will always be there by your side. But in those same remarks, Secretary Blinken also issued a note of caution for Israel. It's so important to take every possible precaution to avoid harming civilians. And that's why we mourn the loss of every innocent life. Civilians of every faith, every nationality who've been killed. Right now, the Israeli military is amassing troops and tanks along the Gaza border, preparing for a possible ground invasion. NBC News' Richard Engel is on that border and is reporting from there this evening. Israel's military is amassing tanks and troops along the border with Gaza. Its chief of staff saying now it is time for war and that the head of Hamas and all those who operate under him deserve to die. 22-year-old Palestia Alakad lives in Gaza. The media is barely covering, covering any news because of the situation. There is no electricity, there is no connection. Like Israelis are literally bombing everywhere, nowhere is safe. Two million people live inside Gaza without the freedom to move beyond its borders. Half of those people are children. And Israel has now blocked access to food, fuel, electricity, and water. To that end, the United Nations is warning of a severe shortage of potable water, a crisis affecting more than 650,000 people. The UN also reports that 300,000 people in Gaza have been displaced, as Israeli airstrikes continue to destroy entire neighborhoods and overwhelm Gaza's emergency services. 
Sky News' John Sparks filed this report from one of Gaza's main hospitals. And just a warning here, some of what you are about to see is graphic and involves children. This is Al-Shifa, the territory's central hospital, where they've treated nearly 5,000 patients in the past four days. This 10-year-old girl was hit by shrapnel from a blast. Her brother lies under a tent on the hospital forecourt. Al-Shifa ran out of beds days ago. The ferocity of the attack, the number of patients, the children that are brought in are brought in with crush injuries from collapsed buildings or shrapnel or debris. There needs to be a stop to the bombing and there needs to be a humanitarian uh, corridor. That hospital, Al-Shifa Hospital, expects that it will run out of fuel in less than three days. In the meantime, hopes for some kind of humanitarian corridor remain distant at best. Today, the president of Egypt, Gaza's best hope for that corridor, said the Palestinians must stay steadfast and remain on their land. Joining me now is Ali Velshi, MSNBC chief correspondent who is reporting from Ashkelon, Israel, near the Gaza border. Ali, what is the latest as it concerns the situation on the ground there? Well, we're hearing as you were uh, were introducing the show, we heard more uh, bombing in Gaza. It's two and a half miles in that direction. Uh, and I'm hearing fighter jets overhead right now. This has been continuous for the last several hours, little breaks in between. Uh, but you're hearing that bombing. And, and those are bombs and missiles that are coming from uh, aircraft or, or naval vessels off in the Mediterranean. Here, we're, we're two and a half miles from the border. Uh, there are rockets and there are mortars, and rockets can go a little farther. Mortars can go about five miles. So something is hit here in Ashkelon. I'll just give you an example. Uh, it has come in, you can tell from the shape of this crater, it came in over here. This is the point of impact. And what it does is it breaks up the ground, and pieces like this of the ground become shrapnel. You were just talking, you had in your report about shrapnel. Take a quick look at what happens here. This whole building, everything's been wiped out. Uh, there, are, there, there are holes all over it. The windows are gone. All the ceilings are gone. If it were bullets, you might think it were bullets, but they'd all look like that, right? But this is shrapnel. So this is rocks. This is part of whatever it was, a rocket or a mortar. Take a look at this. You're sitting in this office. Uh, it goes through the window. That's obvious. But it went through the wall behind it as well. It's not just that. It goes through all of these types of things. Uh, and, and these were places that people were in. Right now, this place is entirely deserted. No one's here. But look at this car in front of me. This is another example. If you look at it from the front, it looks like bullet holes or it's riddled by uh, machine gun fire. It's not. This is the shrapnel that came from that very crater. Take a look inside here at, at what you see. You can look inside this car. If you'd been sitting in a car, you've been driving, when a, when a mortar or a rocket hits you, this is what happens. It's it destroys everything around you. So this is one example. Obviously, we saw the the ferocity and the massacre that happened at the at the uh, Nova Festival, or we saw the things that happened on the kibbutzes, the the savagery, the in person savagery. But there were twenty one hundred rockets fired on Friday night into Saturday morning, rockets and missiles and mortars, and this is the kind of damage that is done all across Israel, but mostly here in southern Israel, you see places that look like this. Ali, are you sensing there's a lot of sort of widespread expectation that the ground invasion is going to begin anytime soon? What can you tell us about the incursions you're seeing from at least the airspace as, as it concerns Israel to Gaza? 
Yeah. So, yes, it, it sounds like and Richard's been reporting. He's closer to the border than I am. He's been reporting that they've got everything they need in position to go into Gaza. What they're waiting for at the moment is the hostage situation. There are 150, 100 to 150 hostage uh, hostages that uh, Israel believes have been taken by Hamas. They're using the word taken because they don't entirely know uh, where they are or what condition they're in. About 100 families, we'll probably get an update on that shortly, have been informed by the government that they can confirm that their loved ones were taken. But for those families, they're very worried that the minute Israel crosses into Gaza, their leverage is gone. The value of those hostages has expired. So they want Israel to concentrate on a negotiated agreement, some way to get those people out or as many of them as they can, and then deal with Hamas and do whatever uh, is necessary to do from an Israeli perspective in Gaza. But for the moment, while much of Israel is 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 anxiously awaiting this ground incursion to root out whatever's going on in Gaza, the hostage families are very, very worried about that. And they're pleading with the government to say, do more. Whatever you're doing, do more. You know, the Secretary of State, by the way, Anthony Blinken, who is here today, he's gone to Amman, Jordan. Tomorrow he's going to Doha, Qatar, where he's going to negotiate with the Qataris or he's going to figure out whether they can help negotiate a humanitarian corridor or a hostage release, something of that nature. Because you've got the people in Gaza who are stuck there. As you said, 300,000 who are not uh, who don't have homes. There's no power. There's the water is running out and the food is running out. And then you've got the hostage situation. So a lot to deal with on day six. Uh, we're, we're no closer to a resolution to this one, Alex. Ali Velshi, MSNBC's chief correspondent. Thank you so much, Ali. Please stay safe. We appreciate you. Now I want to turn to Greg Carlstrom, a Middle East correspondent for The Economist, who joins us tonight from Dubai. Greg, thanks for being here. Um, I just want to get your reaction to the, the statistic we have today that Israel has dropped 6,000 bombs in less than a week on Gaza, which is more than the United States dropped in Afghan on Afghanistan in less than a, in a year. Beyond the sort of endgame of the complete and utter leveling of Gaza, what do you interpret in terms of Israel's strategy, its, its, its broader intentions in that kind of initial show of force? I think Israel has thrown out some of the rules that it has around restraints uh, over the past week. I mean, I think the reaction to this, both the public reaction and the political reaction in Israel was, of course, one of, of shock and anger after the attack on Saturday. And uh, we've heard some uh, incredibly harsh and, and sometimes dehumanizing rhetoric coming out of the Israeli government. And so uh, I think the approach to Gaza has been where in past conflicts in 2014 and 2008, uh, there have been some some restrictions or some safeguards around the way the Israeli military has used air power. I think they have thrown those out the window and uh, they have been much more willing to to use military force. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the sort of inverse of that, which is Hamas and and sort of its reaction to what I know you termed uh, on on Pod Save the World, a podcast that I'm a big fan of the sort of catastrophic success of this mission. Uh, to some degree, the initial sort of reports were brutalizing enough, but the staggering brutality that has been revealed in the days since is unlike anything we've seen from anyone, with maybe the exception of ISIS. Do you think Hamas ultimately believed it would be this, I guess, we, for lack of a better term, successful in this kind of um, mission? I'll say first, no one knows for sure, right? This seems like it was planned by a handful of senior Hamas leaders in Gaza 
uh, none of whom have, have given interviews, none of whom have talked about it. So there is still a lot that we don't know about the planning. But I have heard over the past week, talking to both uh, Israelis and, and talking to Palestinians, including members of Hamas, uh, a belief on both sides that, yes, this may have been, to, to use the term, a catastrophic success, something that went much further than Hamas expected it to, that there was a strategy to carry out a, an attack on Israel, but that no one expected that it would go this far, that no one expected that the defenses on the Israeli side would fall as quickly as they did. Uh, we heard yesterday, uh, speaking with a Hamas official in Gaza, uh, who said more or less that, who said that there was no expectation that the Israeli army would would be caught as unaware as it was. There was no expectation that uh, hundreds of militants would be able to just stream across the border fence, essentially uncontested. And uh, people in Hamas are now trying to suggest that, well, Hamas went across and attacked Israeli military posts, and then other people in Gaza streamed across afterwards and, and carried out some of these atrocities. Now, I think that's trying to shift blame. I think that's that's trying to come up with an excuse here. But that is what we're hearing from people in, in Hamas and also from some Israeli observers. What do you I mean, what do you think the effect of that is in terms of how this plays regionally, especially with Arab countries? The, the idea that at once, you know, Israel's um, overwhelming response here, uh, the leveling of Gaza would seem to sort of stir uh, support for the Palestinian cause. At the same time, the brutality, the horror of these videos that the world is seeing in terms of what these Hamas terrorists did to the civilian population in Israel would seem to counteract that. What do you think is sort of the net result of all of this in terms of potential alliances that Israel was building with, say, Saudi Arabia? I think it's a bit of a different reaction, and it's very hard to say how 300 million people across more than a dozen Arab countries feel about something, but it's a different reaction than I remember in 2014, for example, during that war. Uh, there certainly has been an outpouring of sympathy for the Palestinians, and, and I think that will grow as uh, we see increasing scenes of devastation in Gaza. But there also has been a, a good deal of horror in the region at uh, these atrocities that were carried out in Israel. And I think for governments in the Middle East, that's put a lot of them in, in what feels like a very difficult uh, position. So Saudi Arabia, for example, which has been talking throughout the year about a possible normalization deal with Israel, about establishing uh, diplomatic ties with Israel. The Saudi government initially came out with what seemed like quite a harsh statement, essentially blaming uh, Israel for what happened on Saturday, blaming the Israeli occupation and, and uh, its uh, violations towards Palestinians for, for the massacre that we saw on Saturday. Uh, the Saudis will tell you privately that they don't think that this uh, derails these normalization efforts, that they would still like to move ahead. Um, but they feel like they are caught between, uh, on the one hand, needing to show support for the Palestinians. On the other hand, uh, many governments in the region, many countries in the region, uh, not supporters of Hamas privately would not be happy uh, if there was uh, some would not be unhappy if there was some kind of political change in Gaza. I well, it's, and to talk about the politics, I think domestically in Israel, what it, Netanyahu's formed this unity government. There, it, it is. There is. It is fragile. There is already fracturing there, and I wonder. You know, the latest polling shows that fifty-six percent, a very slim majority of Israelis, believe that Netanyahu must resign at the end of the war. I wonder how you think this campaign of 
extensive bombing and a potential ground invasion factors into all of that and his political future? I think this unity government, no matter what, it will be short-lived. It's meant to be there only for the duration of the war. And then I think it's quite likely that Israel will head to a, a snap election after the war is over. I think for Netanyahu, for his political future, some of that will depend on the outcome of the war, uh, whether Israelis feel it's a successful campaign or whether Israelis feel that uh, it is something that dragged on, didn't achieve its goals, uh, cost a, a significant number of lives of Israeli soldiers. So that piece of it, we'll have to wait and see. And I think the other thing that's going to happen in the weeks and months ahead uh, is that Netanyahu is going to try and shift blame for the profound security failure on Saturday. Uh, he's going to want to put that blame on the heads of the military, the heads of the security services, which is something he's always done throughout his political career. He, he's shifted blame to the military and, and to the defense establishment. I don't think Israelis are going to accept that argument uh, this time. I think they're going to hold Netanyahu responsible. And he is someone who throughout his career has made his whole pitch to voters security, his handling of Israeli security. Now he's presided over uh, the greatest security failure in Israel's history. And so uh, never count him out. He is the consummate political survivor. But I think it's very, very difficult to imagine him surviving this politically. Greg Carlstrom, Middle East correspondent for The Economist. Thanks so much, Greg, for staying up late. Uh, your thoughts are invaluable here as we as we work through a just unbelievable moment in um, a global conflict. Thank you. When we come back, we will turn to the other major story breaking this evening, the catastrophic dysfunction of the House Republican Conference, which has just lost its candidate for Speaker of the House. We'll have more on that coming up next. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. It's been quite a journey, uh, and there's still a long way to go. Uh, I just share with my colleagues, and I'm withdrawing my name as a candidate for the speaker-designee. This country is counting on us to come back together. This House of Representatives needs a speaker, and we need to open up the house again. But clearly, not everybody is there. That was House Majority Leader Steve Scalise just a very short time ago breaking the news that he is dropping out of the race for speaker after failing to secure the 217 votes needed to win the gavel. It has now been nine days since Kevin McCarthy's ouster and nine days that the U.S. House of Representatives has been paralyzed, unable to function without a speaker. Republicans met behind closed doors for several hours this afternoon and then again late this evening to try and break the impasse. Instead, tonight's meeting ended with the leading candidate dropping out just one day after being nominated. Joining me now is Brendan Buck, former top aide to two Republican House speakers, Paul Ryan and John Boehner. 
Brendan, um, thank you for being here. Help me understand, is there any sort of, if you will, succession plan here? Does this redound to Jim Jordan's benefit or maybe even Kevin McCarthy's benefit? Uh, it's possible. I mean, at this point, I, I, you could throw out any name right now, and I would tell you it's possible. I mean, this, we've never seen anything like this. The problem here is you have a House Republican conference that doesn't want to be led, so you can't elect a leader. Um, there was a lot of reasons people were um, having problems with, with Steve Scalise, but I think fundamentally the, the biggest one came down to they didn't feel that he had sufficiently laid out a plan for how they were going to move forward, fund the government. Uh, what that basically means is he couldn't indulge in their fantasies about things they wanted to do, spending cuts, things that were never going to happen. Uh, it just shows you that no matter who you have in this position, you're never actually going to be able to be in charge. People are going to be shooting at you no matter what you do. Um, I, I certainly think Jim Jordan is a, is a possibility at this point, but this is not a job worth having under these circumstances. These people uh, are not reasonable. They don't want to be led. They don't want to govern. They want to play games and um, it would be funny if there weren't such serious consequences uh, for what could potentially happen in the next few weeks if we are not able to get the House back up and running. Yeah, it's tragic on a certain level. And we haven't I mean, there are 36 days before the government shuts down uh, funding for Israel uh, and, and its work in, in terms of the fight it's fighting against Hamas. There are massive questions about how we move forward as a country, as a governing body. And the Republican Party is uh, has created a logjam of epic proportions. I have to ask you, is this crisis, in particular the Scalise crisis, the fault of any particular faction in the party, or is it just everybody deciding that he is not their man? This is a conference that's dysfunctional and hard to manage when there are a lot of, you know, when the adults are in charge. But right now, everybody, it's been a jailbreak. Everybody is a free agent right now. Nobody is in charge and everybody feels like they have their own certain leverage. That was what's so hard about Scalise and why I think he dropped out so quickly. He had some conservatives who didn't like him. He had some more mainstream members who had issues. He had McCarthy allies who didn't like what, what happened here. So it's all over the place and, and nobody feels any real obligation to anybody. Um, that's why I struggle to see anybody really moving forward and getting 217 votes. Maybe this will become just so unbearable and painful that they'll, they'll kind of throw in the towel and, and rally around somebody. I use rally around maybe too loosely because I don't think anybody is going to have any real legitimacy in the conference. Um, but th th there's no real clear path ahead. You may end up having a situation where the House just has to act without a speaker. And Patrick McHenry is effectively empowered uh, either through a vote or just on his own uh, taking action to do some of the things that you said have to be done. Look, if we don't have a speaker in a month, we have to fund the government somehow. They'll figure that out. But in the meantime, it will just continue to be embarrassment because nobody feels any uh, responsibility to the team or to their basic fundamental obligations, which is to fund the government, to do the work. They all want to play their games instead. Does Trump matter here? I mean, he, he endorsed Jim Jordan as speaker. He lost it effectively in the secret vote to Steve Scalise. But a lot of folks are citing Trump's comments yesterday um, talking about Steve Scalise's serious trouble uh, relating to his blood cancer treatments and casting aspersions on his health. Did, do you think that that factored in at all here? I mean, it, leadership elections are really member to member. They're really inside baseball kind of stuff. I don't want to ever say Donald Trump doesn't matter in the House Republican conference. He's the biggest voice. But I don't think that this is what um, 
this is what took down Steve Scalise by any any means. I think it's just members don't feel any obligation or they don't fear anybody at this point. I don't think they fear Donald Trump as it relates to, you know, he endorsed Jim Jordan and Jim Jordan lost. Um, But it just shows you how chaotic it is. You have people trying to nominate Donald Trump to be speaker. And and as far as I can tell, they're serious about it. So, you know, there's no order here. We we could be looking at, at, at this chaos for weeks, I think. Do you think there's any sort of shame or embarrassment within the party? I mean, you say there's no allegiance to the party. There's no allegiance to actually doing one's job. But it's so obviously a disaster for the party to not be able to pick its own leader. Do you think that there's any sort of contrition here about what's happening? in my long history of working with, with House Republicans, one thing we are really bad at is learning lessons. I, I don't think that there is. I, and, and the reality is we, we've talked a lot about the broken incentive structures. For a lot of these members who are blowing the place up, they don't pay any price for it. It's good politics where they are. Um, and all of them have convinced themselves that they are doing the right thing. They are standing up against the swamp, whatever language they use to justify it to themselves. You would think in the context of what's going on in the world and everything that you just talked about, um, that you would stop for a second and think, gosh, we are being really petty. Look, look at the scale of the problems in the world and look at how we are responding. But I don't think a lot the people there. Certainly there are people who are saying that. But those are the people who aren't causing trouble. The people who are causing trouble think they're crusaders. They think they're on the right side of of history somehow. Um, And and they'll, they'll never really learn their lessons. I think at some point it will just come down to pure fatigue. I think they'll, they'll just be so tired of, of being in this situation and want to do things that maybe they'll allow somebody to have the gavel. But again, that, per, that person won't actually be in charge. Whenever we have to fund the government in 36 days, uh, I, I assure you, whoever is holding the gavel at that point is going to have their job threatened. Well, they sure are exhausting all of us in the process. Brendan Buck, thank you for joining me tonight. I appreciate yeah. it, my friend. Thanks. When we come back, as we await Israel's threatened ground offensive in Gaza, we will hear from the mother of an Israeli hostage. That is next. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Before he was taken hostage by Hamas, he texted his parents. He sent a series of heart emojis and wrote in Hebrew what translates to, Mom, I love you. That's it. They are here. It's over. And that is the last his parents have heard from him. 19-year-old Ron Sherman is an Israeli soldier serving his mandatory military service. But his role is not to fight. Sherman helps local Palestinian traders move goods from Israel into Gaza. He doesn't speak much Arabic. He talks with the Palestinians in English. His mother says he loves his job. His post is at a base by a border crossing at the northern edge of the Gaza Strip. 
As you can see in this video released by Hamas, which blurred the faces of the attackers just after daybreak on Saturday, Hamas terrorists bombed that base and then attacked, killing some soldiers and taking others hostage, including Ron Sherman. But Ron's parents have hope that he is still alive. A few hours after that last text from their son, Ron's parents saw another video filmed by Hamas. They again blurred the faces of the terrorists kidnapping their son, but the image shows Ron after his capture still alive and uninjured. That all happened nearly a week ago, and now all Ron's parents can do is wait and hope. Joining me now is Ron Sherman's mother, Mayan Sherman. Thank you so much for talking with us right now at this very, very difficult time. Um, could Could you first tell us what kind of conversations are you having with the Israeli government? Um, none, if you can say just none. I'm, we have really good um, support um, from, you know, around, but not directly from the government. No, nothing. Did they give you any information about your son or was your, I mean, has your um, assessment of his condition been mo- from what you've heard from other networks? They don't know anything. They know exactly like I do. And probably I will know, you know, before them. This is something that, you know, today with all the the media and uh, the social media and the videos that you get, uh, you know, everything before everybody else. You know, it's the government tells us nothing uh, at this stage. What do you make, I mean, sort of what are your feelings as you watch the Israeli government um, and the bombing uh, of Gaza, the destruction of the buildings and the the water and food and electricity crisis with the idea that your son may be in Gaza? You're, You're right. This is now our second concern because we have so many concerns, but you know, first, first we hear because we hear it because we just live 40 kilometers from the Gaza Strip. Uh, uh, all the time we have, uh, you know, our house just moves from the bombings from the um, from uh, what um, we are doing. The uh, our uh, army does now in uh, Gaza Strip. We are very worried because uh, Ron is inside with other hostages inside the Gaza Strip, and um, and you know. We can do nothing, just hope that uh, he will survive it somehow. By the way, our first uh, concern is that Ron is asthmatic, and um, this is the reason why he wasn't a combat soldier. Yeah, he can hardly breathe even in his own house. He needs his inhaler. And uh, we are very worried because we assume they are inside, you know, the tunnels uh, underneath the Gaza Strip. And he he wouldn't be able to uh, to survive without uh, his medicine. Um, we are trying to get uh, to the Red Cross, uh, you know, just to 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 to, uh, to solve this uh, problem, this first problem, uh, in order to 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 survive the, the first uh, week. The, I, we don't know uh, yet. The, I, we we, don't, we didn't receive any. Uh, you know, we don't think that uh, the the Gazan uh, the, the the terrorists uh, let the Red Cross inside the Gazan Strip. Uh, actually, we don't know if one is dead or alive right now. But as you uh, as you can clearly see in the videos, 
the Hamas um, filmed. He was seen, as you said, uh, alive after after the kidnapping. Um, how, yeah. How are you making it through these days? Are you speaking with the families of other hostages? I just, as a mother myself, I cannot imagine what you are suffering through. And I, how do you find this, the strength and the resilience to go on and to continue to talk about this? Because uh, this is the only thing I can do. I, I, I really think that, you know, to raise the awareness among the world, uh, to that other uh, other people around the world will see what's what's going on here, here in Israel. Uh, I'm talking to the press all day. My uh, husband talks uh, on, to the press all day. We are, you know, we are having conversations with other hostages uh, uh, families. Uh, this is what what we're doing all day. We're trying our best to, uh, you know, we cannot sleep, we cannot eat. Uh, it's a un- <laughs> it's it's unbearable situation for us. Uh, the worst of the worst, you know, you, I wouldn't, you know, it's something that uh, I wouldn't even th- think about in my worst dreams that could happen to us. Um, but we still have hope. And this is why I see uh, our family. Uh, you know, we, we see ourselves as lucky at this, sta- at this stage because other families um, have already received the, the, you know, what the, the loved one is dead and we still have hope. Well, may your hope be met with good news, Mayan Sherman. Thank you so much for telling us your story. We wish you strength through this awful time. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Joining me now is someone who has some idea of what the hostages and their families are going through. David Rode was reporting on the Afghanistan war for The New York Times in 2008 when he and several others were kidnapped outside of Kabul. They were held for seven months and 10 days before escaping. And David is now, I'm very happy to say, a colleague. He is the national security editor for NBC News. Um, David, I, I was... I was listening to some of the accounts of um, people who have lost their children, either as hostages or who have been killed. And Clarissa Ward uh, spoke with a father this morning who said, and I, I, this really stuck with me. He, he told her, he said, they just found his daughter, Emily. She is dead. And I said, yes. I smiled because that was the best possibility that I was hoping for. She was either dead or she was in Gaza. If you know anything about what they do to people in Gaza, it is worse worse than death. What do you make of that just unbearable logic there? It's it shows that that um, the victims and the people who suffer the most in many ways, I mean, clearly the hostages, but it's the families. I mean, you saw that with. Mrs. Sherman, like the, the this is such a cruel and cowardly crime. I'm clearly biased about it. But my mother, my spouse, I just got married at the time, my, my siblings, my editors, when I was kidnapped, it puts the family in this impossible situation. That father would rather have, you know, his daughter pass away. The Shermans are doing TV interviews, you know, talking to these other families. And it creates this false sense in families that it's they literally hold the lives of their loved ones in their hands. If they can just get Prime Minister Netanyahu to see me on TV, he'll do the prisoner exchange. And the families feel like, you know, they can they can save the life of their loved one. And they don't really have that power. American families trying to get an Oval Office meeting with President Biden. 
And, you know, the fault here, the problem here, here, and you'll see families now get very angry with the U.S. and the Israeli government. Um, but the, the party at fault here is the kidnappers. Of course. It's a slow motion, cowardly crime. And it plays out over months and years. And it's just it obviously tortures the hostages, but it, it tortures these families. What do you I mean, do you feel like there is you look at the just absolute destruction in Gaza? And I wonder what you as a former hostage think of that, given the fact that, you know, there's no food, there's no electricity, there's no water. That's for the people of Gaza. What does that mean for the hostages? You know, the, the absolute leveling of that strip. How can that pretend anything but the worst news? This sounds um, awful, but they consider these hostages incredibly valuable. Sure. I think they will. They're underground. They're in very deep bunkers. I think there's food and water that you know Hamas has stored for a long time. So they will keep them alive. It became very clear to me in my kidnapping that they wanted, you know, they were asking for millions of dollars and all these prisoners from Guantanamo. Um, so that's on the positive side. The other thing, too, is that there's a large enough number of them. That's obviously not a good thing. But they at least have each other. Uh, I'm still in touch with the Afghan journalist who was kidnapped with me and the driver. The Afghan journalist helped me escape. Um, so, it, you know, that's a positive thing. But this could go on for a very, very long time. The last time um, Hamas had a hostage was one Israeli soldier. They held him for five years in Gaza. Wow. Israel could not find him. And eventually they traded a thousand Palestinian prisoners for one soldier. So that's what Hamas expects. And we're looking at maybe 100, 150 people. It's extraordinary and extraordinarily sad. David, it is. Yeah, you're well, you're you're sort of assessment of this is invaluable. I know it's probably, I can only imagine, difficult to talk about it, uh, given your own experience. Uh, but thanks for sharing tonight. Thanks for coming on the set. I appreciate it. David Road, National Security Editor and NBC News. When we come back, as images of the continued fighting and destruction in Israel and Gaza spread across the globe, so too are concerns about a potential spike in hate crimes and threats. What authorities here are doing to allay those fears? That's coming up next. Last night at 5.40 p.m., a 19-year-old allegedly assaulted a 24-year-old Israeli student outside of Columbia University's library in New York City. The victim had posted flyers around campus with the names and photos of Israelis reportedly held hostage by Hamas. The victim alleges that they saw the suspect ripping those flyers off the walls and confronted the suspect. They say the suspect then yelled obscenities at them and beat them with a stick, breaking one of their fingers. The victim told Columbia's student newspaper, this is because of me being an Israeli these days. Then at around 8 p.m. last night, a 34-year-old man holding a Palestinian flag was attacked in South Williamsburg in Brooklyn. He claims that two men wearing traditionally Jewish clothing grabbed the flag from him, tore it up, and then hit him with the pole that was attached to the flag. After that, at around 11.30 p.m. in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, 15 suspects in three cars waving Israeli flags allegedly shouted anti-Palestinian epithets at three young Arab men who were standing on the side of the road. Those young men back shouted back something to the effect of free Palestine. Some of the men in the cars then got out and attacked the youngest Arab man, punching and kicking him repeatedly. The events in both Gaza and Israel have raised tensions that transcend borders. 
There is now heightened concern uh, concern about an uptick in hate-based violence against Jewish and Muslim Americans right here in the United States, particularly tomorrow. A former leader of Hamas issued a statement this week calling for a global day of rage, urging followers to protest against Israel around the world on Friday. Law enforcement across the U.S. is increasing patrols of Jewish houses of worship, worship and Jewish-owned businesses. Police in New York City and Los Angeles have been instructed to report for duty in uniform tomorrow at protests or large gatherings. In Washington, D.C., the police, the FBI, Homeland Security, the Secret Service, and Capitol Police are all stepping up their monitoring of potentially vulnerable sites, including the Israeli embassy and Capitol Hill. The hope is that increased police presence will be a deterrent and that tomorrow will pass peacefully. Let's hope it does. We are better than this. Still ahead tonight, more than a week after Republican Congressman Kevin McCarthy was booted from House Speakership, Republicans just lost their top candidate to replace him. What happens next? We're going to discuss it after the break. Tonight, House Majority Leader Steve Scalise announced that he is withdrawing from the race for Speaker of the House just one day after winning a narrow conference vote to become the party's speaker-designate. So what now? Joining me now is Ali Vitale, NBC News Capitol Hill correspondent. Ali, thank you for, for hanging with us in this late hour. It sounded like Steve Scalise's support eroded over the last 24 hours. Is that accurate? Well, it definitely didn't go up to the near the 217 number that he needed, Alex. He spent several hours today meeting with folks who were either never going to vote for him or said they were never going to vote for him, but just hadn't been spoken to yet. Those meetings didn't yield him any more votes in a positive direction. That being said, people in the room were surprised, and frankly, so were reporters when Scalise ultimately dropped out tonight. And that really does put Republicans back to the drawing board. No official names in the mix now tonight. The first person we all thought of was Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, because he was the person who garnered 99 votes behind closed doors yesterday when they all met and ultimately made Scalise the speaker-designee. Jordan told me that out of respect for Scalise, he wasn't going to make anything official, no announcements tonight. But we widely expect Jordan to be the person to beat, the next man on the chopping block, if you will. And the reason I say that is because everyone here has a math problem. When members were going in and out of the first meeting that they had today, one of them joked with me that if I saw smoke coming from the room, it wasn't because they elected a speaker. It was because they decided to burn the place down. That's a little bit of gallows humor, but ultimately that does kind of feel like where we landed. Complete chaos and no idea what's next. Yeah, it sounds officially like the House Republican Conference is ungovernable. And my question to yeah. you is, given the looming government shutdown, given, given the, you know, the international situation uh, that we have that we are all which, what, witnessing unfold in the Israel-Hamas war, is there going to be a conversation with House Democrats anytime soon? It does not look like the Republicans can do this on their own. I've been so struck that those conversations haven't even been happening sooner. I'm talking to several Democrats who would at least be open to that. And quite frankly, the leadership offices are surprised that Republicans haven't at least done some cursory outreach in a real meaningful way to try to get some Democrats on board for something, whether it's making the pro tempore speaker, Patrick McHenry, a more official speaker so that he can at least move legislation on the floor, condemning Hamas or giving more humanitarian or military aid to Israel. All of those things 
you would think are being talked about, but Republicans would rather argue among themselves than look across the aisle and try to do something to fix this moment of chaos. And it sort of makes sense as to why, when you consider the fact that the only reason they're casting about for a new speaker right now is because McCarthy ended up having to do the thing Republicans won't do now, which is look across the aisle and avoid a government shutdown. Democrats, more than Republicans, voted to avoid that shutdown just a few weeks ago. Another one is looming. And I think the lesson for the Republican conference wasn't look bipartisanly. It was, we have to stay within our own ranks or else someone else from within our own house is going to try to oust us from our job. It's not a great lesson to learn, and certainly the house is not functional, but it seems like the lesson that they're going with. House of delusions. Ali Vitali, thank you for your time tonight, my friend. Appreciate it. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.